Thank you for listening to the Moral Revolution podcast. In this session, Chris Ballatin will be sharing a message entitled, Fatherhood. You know, I've been thinking so much about um, this whole thing of fatherhood, and we prayed that prayer today, you know, what's called the Lord's Prayer, Our Father Who's in Heaven. Our Father Who's in Heaven. And I, um, I got on my computer last night as I was preparing for this message, and I, uh, I, I realized for the first time in the Old Testament, the word Father is used 613 times. Only four times is that word Father in the Old Testament used for God. In the New Testament, the, the word Father is used 311 times, 249 times it's used for God. Now, listen, you don't have to be a statistician to go, wow, I think God's trying to say something. And how many of you know that God is not human? Let's try that again. And what do the rest of you think? What? <laughs> He's just a really tall guy with a long beard, right? How many know God's not human? It's so interesting that God's not human, and yet he calls him, the creator who was never born, calls himself father. As a matter of fact, Romans 8 says, daddy, says you can refer to me as daddy. Abba means daddy. And he says, I'm going to send you a savior. I'm going to call him son. And we realize that, that we were born again into a cosmic family. I mean, it's just, a, it's just an amazing revelation that in the New Testament we find that, the, that, that God wants to reveal himself as heavenly father. And he wants us to relate to him as we would a father. 249 times he says, you can call me father. Jesus said, I only come to do the works of the Father, and he teaches us to pray, our Father who's in heaven. You realize they never prayed in all thousands of years in the Old Covenant, not one time did anyone ever pray, our Father. Only prayer, only time they ever had permission to pray, our Father, was in the New Covenant. That when, when Jesus died on the cross, he gave us permission to become a son to a father who happens to be the creator. What an amazing story. And then he begins to talk to us about fatherhood and family when he says you're co-heirs. An heir, it's a part of a family, it's, a, it's part of a family kingdom. And God says you're co-heirs of Christ Jesus. And we find out that we have all this family language being used in the new covenant. And God says, listen, I don't want you to just be uh, I don't want you to just, you know, relate to me as, as somebody, you know, from a distance. I can see, you know, it's like, God's like, I'm not from a distance. I'm with you. And God wants to improve on the walking in the cool of the garden. He wants to be with you always. How many of you know the original plan was that God would be a father to, to sons and daughters and he would come in the cool of the garden. And God said, my original plan was to be father. And somehow... Somehow, when man fell, God becomes judge, and he becomes, the, he becomes injustice becomes important because people have fallen, and, and suddenly we start to view God as, as the judge, and we, we realize that the judge sits on a mercy seat, and God's revelation in the Old Testament is as him as justice and, and judge, and, and, we, and we, in the New Testament, we begin to see that, that not, is, it not only is he judge, but the person who's judging his father, and he begins to relate to us in a, in a, new, in a new way after the blood of the, of the new covenant. And just, it's just so exciting to me. 
And, um, you know, in Matthew 3, I'm sorry, Matthew 23, 9, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who have taken the place of the Heavenly Father. And he makes this statement, Call no man on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. I, I have been so, so, um, so taken by the fact that the Bible is written in a paradox. How many of you have figured that out? It's like, it's like a bow, it's like a, uh, a recurved bow. It's like what makes the arrow fly is the pressure that's on that bow that pulls that string tight. And it's like we're arrows that are being sent out by God, but the, but the bow is, this, is truth that's held in tension. And it's like, what, uh, let me give you a couple exam- examples. You know, Jesus said, unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciple. You're like, well, Jesus is not in a good mood. <laughs> Came to one of his sermons when he's uh, got post-ministry syndrome. <laughs> Having a bad day with the Pharisees. Unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciple. And then in another place, in the same, in the same gospel, he says to the Pharisees, you call everything Corban. Corban means a gift to God. You call everything you own a gift to God, and you dishonor your parents. And therefore, you have broken the commandment, honor your mother and father. It's like, do I honor them or do I hate them? You, you, it's, it's like, you, don't, you can't read the Bible and know what to do. I'm pausing. I haven't finished my sentence yet. It's a comma. Unless you have the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit who reveals all truth to you. Because, because the whole Bible's written in a way that you need a tour guide to tell you what to do when. And part of the challenge that we have in, in just in Christendom is that we, we, we take certain aspects of, of truth and we make it like our truth. So this is our truth. I don't mean those guys, you know, across the street do that. I mean, we do it. We all do it. We're like, God is, he is merciful. Someone else goes, he's just. And we're like, oh, yeah, but, yeah, that's um, another translation. That's not, God loves everybody. There's going to be a judgment day. Like, yeah, yeah, I just don't read those chapters. And, and, we, it's like, and, and, you know, that's why Paul said, we have the mind of Christ. He didn't say, I have the mind of Christ. He said, we have the mind of Christ. And I think that God intentionally creates those kind of, um, emphasis in, in our lives and we become a voice into the kingdom but we're not the only voice you know it takes a, the a balanced message isn't actually done in one congregation I think a balanced message comes from the whole body of Christ I'm the only balanced guy I know and I was thinking about this you know Jesus saying do not call anyone on earth your father for there's one who is your father, and he's in heaven. Now, that's interesting because 613 times in the Old Testament alone, men are called fathers by God. And they called one another father. About 40 times in the New Testament. Paul says this, he said, you may have many tutors, but you don't have many fathers. And I'm your father. I'm like, wait a second, Jesus said, don't call yourself father, you just made yourself father. I, I, and I remember when, um, when I received Jesus, uh, when I received, <laughs> Kathy's a Catholic, when I received Jesus, um, Kathy was a Catholic. 
And so I got really on fire for God. And, you know, I met Kathy when she was 12. We got engaged when she was 13. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I would never let anyone even look at my daughter at 13. I broke both his arms. <laughs> don't even think that I think that's healthy. Because I don't. I mean, it's very dysfunctional. All right. But anyway, it worked for us. And um, we, <laughs> so we were together, together four years before um, we found Christ. And I, I found the Lord first. And, and, uh, and Kathy was going to, uh, and Kathy was you know, raised as a Catholic. And then when I, when I received Christ and I started you know, really getting on fire, I was going to this group. And I was being discipled by a former Catholic who was actually became an anti-Catholic, and he had a lot of bitterness towards the Catholic Church, and he was a good man. I didn't know he had bitterness towards the Catholic Church. I just, you know, we were taught the Catholic Church was the mother harlot in the book of Revelation, so serious, we were taught that. How many of you are old enough to remember that so these guys know I'm not lying? Uh, but I don't feel that way at all, by the way. It's just maybe I should fast forward before anyone walks out of here and say, I believe, you know, there's born-again people in the Catholic Church, and there's even some born-again people in here, and it's just awesome. <laughs> so, so here we go. But, so, so Catholic, Kathy, Catholic, Kathy. <laughs> see, now, you think I did that on accident, but see, that was, I was, was flowing in this, when you flow in the spirit, you end up with another vocabulary. And I'm writing in Chrysopedia. It's really cool, and, and actually, it's, it's been developing all week long as I write my book. The computer, you know, you would think, like, this computer has all this, you know, space, and it doesn't know certain words. And it says, do you want to add this to the dictionary? Well, of course, if you don't have it in there, I want to add it to the dictionary. <laughs> my goodness. So, anyway, my dictionary is expanding like crazy. Um... Some of you have no idea if I'm kidding or not, right? So, so anyway, so Kathy was a Catholic, and when I received Christ and I started going to this group, um, she said, well, you know what, I'll go to your group if you go, if you go with me to youth group at the Catholic Church. I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. Well, my friend who's discipling me is feeding me questions to ask the priest. So we go... <laughs> This poor guy, he was so patient too. Father Lawrence, I'll never forget it. God bless his soul. And uh, so we go, to, we go to youth group, which is about, I don't know, 50 kids, 40, 50, 60 kids. And, and he's teaching out of the Bible. And then there's questions and answer time at the end. Well, I think he meant to ask that we were supposed to ask questions that had something to do with what he was teaching. But my, my friend would give me a list of three or four questions to ask the priest. Every, so every time there was question and answer time, I would go, so, so I remember the first week, so it's question and answer time, and I go, um, um, uh, Father, Father Lawrence, why do you guys call yourself Father when it says right here, like, you're not supposed to call yourself Father? I'd ask him that question, stuff like that. After about four months of that, he invited me out of the group, <laughs> and, uh, and I realized now, like, it, it wasn't his issue, it was my issue. And I realized that what... What Jesus is saying is that you don't, we, you don't have a right to have a father who takes the place of the heavenly father. And he's talking to Pharisees who have so become a, a, a father in a sense, and you know what I'm trying to say, they, they have so taken uh, the figure of father in the life of Israel that literally they have replaced God 
in Israel. And the, and the Lord says to them, you do, you, do not call, you, you do not call any of yourselves fathers, for there's one father that's in heaven. And I realized in my own life that there are, there are times in, in our lives as fathers that we have to be careful that we don't step over that line and become to our own sons and daughters something that, that we're not called in other words, we replace God in their life. It's important that we teach our sons and daughters how to connect with God and not take the place of God because we actually worry and call it care. I remember a real transition point in my life as far as uh, my role in my, in my grandchildren's life. And I, My son, of course, is a pastor here, and I have eight grandkids, and I don't know if even Jason will remember this, but several years ago, they were over our house, and three of of my grandkids, Jason's kids were there and they were, they were all running and doing stuff and one of them was doing something, I, I think it may have been Elijah, and I, I leaned over to, and I said, Elijah, come here, come here son, I need, you to, I need, to, I need to talk to you. And uh, as Elijah's kind of, you know, coming to me, my son, Jason, puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, on my knee, and he goes, Dad, I got it from here, I got it from here. And I'm like, and, and I, I mean, he wasn't being rude or anything. He's just like, I, I got this handled. And I realized that my role, my role had shifted, but I hadn't shifted. That I was a grandfather. And that my, my main function as a grandfather was to cast vision, create legacy, impart virtues and core values, and protect the boundaries that were, that were, that were, released to me from my forefathers. No longer was my primary role discipline and even training. That had been passed on to my sons who have become fathers. And I think sometimes in our lives, it's really easy for us to not, not transition and, and actually take the place of our Heavenly Father in the lives of our sons and daughters and, and, and in those places, in those times, is when the Lord says, don't call any man father. In other words, you've taken the place of your heavenly father. You, you, have, you have insulated, you've isolated your children from me by meeting every need and not turning them to me when, when, when they're in crisis, when they're in trouble. I know many years ago, my daughter, uh, my oldest daughter, Jamie, had seizures when she was eight years old, she began to have grand mal seizures. And they were, you know, if you know anything about seizures, grand mal seizures like the worst kind of seizure you can have. And she was having them really often. And this is a really long story. The short story is, is that she was allergic to all four medications that they had at that time to stop seizures. So the doctor basically said, there's nothing we can do for her. Um, none of the medication, she's allergic to all the medications. So... You, you just, uh, he didn't say pray, he said you just kind of need to watch her and, and hope that nothing bad happens. Well, that's pretty tough when your kids, you know, I mean the worst thing in the world is to see someone you love, a little child having a grandma seizure, is, it, just, it doesn't get too much worse than that. And so we just went for months and I just remember getting up in the middle of the night grieving just grieving, just walking the floor, hard to explain if you've never been through it, just grieving. My daughter had had a seizure one day that day, 
And I remember being up about two, three o'clock in the morning, just pacing the floor, just saying, this is not right. This needs to stop. And, and just, you know, just the, the pressure of her, of her problem just feeling powerless and overwhelmed. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. I was in our bedroom just praying in the middle of the night, and I felt like the Lord said, why don't you give her to me? Why don't you give her to me? And I remember thinking, you know, of course my first thought is, well, I thought I did, but then I realized that if I did, then I wouldn't, be having, I wouldn't have all this anxiety. Like we always say, oh God, you can do anything. Then we worry. It's like, that's not the bow. That's called susception or something. A word I haven't made up yet. And so the Lord says, why don't you give her to me? Why don't you let me have her? Would you give her life to me? Would you offer her to me as a sacrifice? And I thought, and I said to him, I said, well, I'm afraid if I do that, that you'll let her die. And he said to me, do you think you have any ability to keep her alive? I'm like, well, that's a really good point right there. <laughs> you always outsmart me. And I remember coming to this place where I, that night, it wasn't a rational place. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I mean, I could rationalize, yeah, I should give her God and all that. It wasn't, it wasn't a head, heart, head thing. It was a heart thing. And I remember one day just going, God, I give Jamie to you. I give her to you. I don't know what you're going to do with her. I don't know if you're going to choose. She's so beautiful, you may choose to take her home early because you so want her. And I don't know how I'm going to deal with that. But I give her to you today. Wow, it was really a lot of tears. And the next morning I woke up and it was like, it's really, I don't want to say there was no like concern because that wouldn't be true. But this heavy weight just lifted off me. It was probably about, uh, I, I'm really bad at time, two months later, Jamie had to come down for uh, brainwave tests every month because they had no medication to help her, so he wanted to keep track of how her epilepsy looked on, on an e, EEG? E, EKG, EEG, I think it is. Brainwave test. And then, so one day, when she's coming down for her monthly test, Kathy's bringing her down, I'm working, and I remember kissing her goodbye. And as they drove out of the driveway, I remember the Lord saying, this is the day of your deliverance. And I'll, I won't ever forget, Kathy called, we didn't have cell phones in those days, she called from the phone booth and she said, uh, Dr. Ainsley says that Jamie's uh, brainwaves are perfectly normal and she seems to be fine. She's like 35 and I don't, she's never had a seizure since. And, you know, but I, I remember those days where we just, we, where I just had to give her to God. And I think that one of the things that we, can, we need to do best as fathers is to give our children to God. I don't mean like in a way that we, don't, we aren't concerned, but in a way that we don't step between, between them and God and become, and come to that place where God goes, hey, I don't want you to be called father anymore. 
because you've taken my place. You've taken the role of heavenly father. So you're not going to call yourself father anymore. And, and I think that it's so, so easy to, to come to that place when you love your children so much and you just want to protect them from anything that could possibly happen. And I, I wonder, you know how Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and he fasted for 40 days? I kind of have this picture that, that sometimes our children go through, through trials and we go in and, we, and they're, they're like on the 38th day and we go in and we bring them food. God goes, it's 40, we're starting over. And I wonder if we extend sometimes the, their trials because God's trying to mold them and we just, we just want to be, do you know what I'm saying? It's almost like uh, unsanctified mercy. It's like we want to cover them from everything. God's like, would you just, would you just trust me? Would, I molded you this way. Would you just trust me that I can mold your sons, your daughters this way? And sometimes I think in my own life that I just have to get to a place and I just confess today that, that I've struggled with this most of my life. I get to a place where I actually get in, in between God and them and I become Heavenly Father. I wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say that. But I am so trying to insulate them from anything that could possibly be harmful. I mean, I mean hard, not harmful, of course. Harmful, yes, but hard. And, trying to, and the Father's like, would you just trust me to be Heavenly Father? Would you trust me? Hebrews 12 says, says that, that if we don't receive discipline, then we are, the word there is actually bastards, son, we're bastards and not sons. And sometimes the Lord is bringing discipline into our lives or, or correction or redirection or he's molding us. And, and we, we're, we're, we become the people who are insulating God from doing what he wants to do with our kids. And I just want to exhort me and us that we need to learn to come to this place where we trust God, where we care for our kids, we, we love them, we protect them, we nourish them, but we realize that we're just an extension of the Heavenly Father's work in their lives. You know, it takes a male to reproduce a child, but it takes a son to be a father. We're not just a sperm bank, men. You know, just because you have a whole bunch of of uh, 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 kids because you can reproduce biological kids doesn't make you a father and I tell you what happens is we see so many so many guys that, that reproduce children who we call father because they have children we go well that's a father and we go and we, we come to this place we're like what the heck is a father then if that's a father what is a father and I think we've redefined what fatherhood means because we've lost sight that most of us grew up in some kind of a global orphanage where nobody ever really taught us what it is to be a father. No one ever nourished and cherished and loved us and cared for us. And, and then we reproduce that in other people and we're like, it, the, the whole definition of fatherhood gets, gets morphed to our experience instead of the Bible's definition and, and we've lost a sense of what it is to be a father. I mean, being a father doesn't mean that you can just biologically reproduce kids. And being a father means that you're, that you're a nourisher, that you're a protector. And again, it has to be in balance, but that you're a nourisher, that you're a protector, that you're somebody that, that um, is there and, 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 um, and, and, loves, and loves your kids in a way that is felt. I remember uh, years, a couple, three years ago, my son went through a really tough time and You've heard that story a lot. And, and he was preaching during that season, and he said this. He said, I've often went through things that are bigger than me, but I've never went through anything that's bigger than my family. And I think that statement is true 
when your family includes your heavenly father and your brother Jesus Christ, if you're with me. I mean, nothing's bigger than your heavenly cosmic family. There are things that are bigger than you, but there's nothing bigger than your family. And sometimes we have to realize that our struggles are a family affair. Sometimes we isolate ourselves when we, get it, we go through a struggle and we isolate ourselves and we don't realize that we're isolating ourselves from the very answer that the Father has put around us to, to, to fulfill our needs. And it's important that we, that we realize that. Mm. I remember uh, I have two daughters and uh, when they would date, <laughs> anyway, one of the one of our one of my rules, one of my very few rules, I hope, is that whoever you dated, you had to bring home to meet Dad first. All is very interesting. So one of my daughters, um, a guy asked her out, and he was living in a group home, and so he's. She says, Dad, Henry wants to date me. His name wasn't Henry. He wants to take me out on a date. And she's like 17. I said, okay. Well, Henry has to meet me. Dad, Dad, no. I said, hey, dude, that's the rule. Henry has to meet me before he takes you out. Dad, you know, I said, besides that, you know, I'm concerned about where he's coming from. She goes, Dad, he's a, he's, he's a, he's a brand new believer. You guys are so serious today. <laughs> I don't know if it's just, am I being intense? I'm sorry. It's like, he's a brand new believer. Come on, man. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, I mean, we have to believe. I mean, we're, we're in the business of believing that God redeems people and transforms them. But when someone wants to date our daughter, <laughs> we're in a different business. So this, this young man's living in a group home, which is awesome, and, and he's received Jesus, and he's about three or four months old in the Lord, and he wants to date my daughter. So I'm like, okay, well, he has to meet me. He says, okay, Dad. She says, well, can I bring him to home group? Can I bring him to home group to meet you? That'll feel more comfortable. I just bring him to home group. I go, yeah, that's fine. So here comes Henry, and Henry's nervous, man. <laughs> I mean, Henry, he's, he's in a cold sweat. And so he's like, uh, so he comes to the, I, I come to the door, and he's like, Dad, this is Henry. And he puts out his hand, and I, I grab his hand to shake his hand. He's sweaty. I grab his hand and shake his hand. He says, hi, Mr. Valentin, I'm Henry. I said, good to meet you, Henry. And I hold on to his hand. I give him a little squeeze. I said, Henry, you, you he says, yeah, I, I, I'd like to take your daughter out. I still have his hand. I said, that's, that's all right. You can do that. But if you touch her, I will break both your arms. He goes, <laughs> I go, oh, you think I'm kidding, don't you? And I will ask for forgiveness later. That's not the way to behave. I'm sharing with you a mistake I made as a father. But it helped my, my daughter with her purity plan. <laughs> I 
<laughs> I bet he's still telling that story. You know, um, one of the parts of uh, fatherhood that I think is, has been lost is the way that God uh, deals with us in a multi-generational bless- blessing. You know, he says, if you honor your mother and father, then you'll have long life. And honor creates a high way in which inheritance flows from generation to generation. When Malachi said, in the last days, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers back to sons, and the hearts of sons back to fathers, least I smite the nation with the curse. A curse, a curse in that context means that you reap what you sow, and there is no multi-generational inheritance because you've separated the generations. And God wants to reconcile the generations so that we can live not on what we did, but we can actually receive the benefit from what our forefathers have accomplished in God. And actually that that, that, that whatever it is that my forefathers have accomplished in God becomes a, uh, something that I can receive, not something I work for, but something I can receive through inheritance. And so much is lost in New Testament Christianity in, in the fact that we don't make this connection. Like, we have lost connection with fathers and sons. And I think that one of the things that God's doing in the earth is he's beginning to release real fathers. And when I say fathers, I'm not just talking about uh, uh, the male gender. I'm talking about fathers and mothers. That he's releasing fathers and mothers into the earth so that they can connect with sons and daughters and that that curse can be broken and we can have a multi-generational blessing. I feel like there's this, this is, this, uh, um, we're moving in this new covenant way. And I was, one day, I was thinking about this, like in Hebrews um, chapter 7, there's an interesting story, and I'll end with this concept. Um, Lot, Abraham's cousin, who's living in Sodom, actually gets captured. He becomes a POW because Sodom and Gomorrah and two other uh, countries, they go to war with five kings, and they lose the battle, and the kings carry them off as POWs and put them in prison camps. And it says this, when Lot heard that his cousin, I'm sorry, when Abraham heard that his cousin Lot was taken captive, that he went after the five kings. And what's amazing is that that's only about one line in the Bible. That Abraham takes his shepherds, goes after five kings, whips five kings, and rescues Lot. I don't know why it's only one verse, you know, only one, because, you know, David whips a big guy, and he gets, like, three chapters. Abraham, you know, takes on five kings, and he gets one verse. But the most profound thing is, here's Abraham, and he's in the battlefield, and he's picking up the spoil after he's won the battle. Him and his men are picking up the spoil. And it says, then a man enters the field. Now, you could kind of go there with me. You're in this battlefield, this huge battlefield. There's, you know, there's people dead all over the battlefield, and there's, there's, you know, there's stuff to pick up. There's weapons and things that they had, and you're out there in the battlefield with your men, and you're picking up all the spoil. And suddenly, somebody walks onto the battlefield, and it says this about it. It says that the man who walks onto the battlefield, he has no beginning, and he has no end. <laughs> this story just keeps getting stranger. And it says, when Abraham saw this man named Melchizedek, it says, when he saw this man and he realized that this man had no beginning and no end, 
that he gave him a tenth of all the spoil. Now, that's a pretty wild story, but it gets crazier. It says that when Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek, that Levi tithed to Melchizedek. You're like, so? So Levi won't be born for 150 years. When Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, one of the 12 sons was Levi. Levi became a tribe, 11 tribes worked, one tribe received tithes, and it says Levi who received tithes paid tithes when Abraham tithed because Levi was in the loins of Abraham. Now what's amazing is this, is that Levi got credit for paying tithes to Melchizedek, but Levi wouldn't be born for four generations. And what happened? Abraham sowed to, into a man who had no beginning and no end. And when he sowed into a man who had no beginning and no end, he sowed into eternity. And when he sowed into eternity, he reaped a legacy so that his children's 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 children were not treated as they deserved, but they were treated as their father Abraham deserved. So in this case, fatherhood wasn't just nourishing and cherishing and protecting in the sense that we would think of where, you know, you have children that are young and growing up in your home and, you know, when we teach on fatherhood, teach on, you know, we need to nurse them, we need to cherish them, we need to take care of them. But this is a place where a father, a mother can win a personal victory with God. And because God lives in eternity, when I win a personal victory with God, it transcends time and space so that the people who are under my covering, my sons, my daughters, they begin to receive a blessing from heavenly places that years, maybe a hundred years, two hundred years, three hundred years from now, my children, if I live right with God, and if I sow into eternity, and if I think from eternity, and if I, and if I dedicate myself to totally and completely God, my personal victories become a corporate blessing so that my great, 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 great grandchildren are actually... They're actually benefiting from this message today. David had this thing on him. You know, God said to me one day, he says that you think that David was a man after my heart because he worshiped. And because he created 24-7 worship, he said that's a piece of it. But when I told David, and get this, this was a test of David's integrity. When I told David that he could not build a temple for me, I did not want a man of bloodshed building something permanent. I want Solomon, a man of peace. You've got to get that. It's a prophetic declaration. God said, I love David. He's a man after my heart. But a man of bloodshed should not make something permanent. I'll let Solomon build it. It says this, And David prepared all of the materials and raised all the money for Solomon so that Solomon could not fail. When could Solomon start building? Solomon was not allowed to build until David was dead. And God said, David lived for a generation he'd never see. Now, what happens when you read the book of Kings? You have, you have like first, uh, 2 Kings 15.1, where God is speaking to a king. This happens to be Jeroboam. And God says to Jeroboam, I would destroy you, because Jeroboam's wicked, if it wasn't for your father, David. I made a covenant 
with your father David. Therefore, I will bless you. This is 2 Kings. You're talking about hundreds of years after David. God calls David Jeroboam's father. In what way was David a father to Jeroboam? He never met the guy. David won that personal victory. Why? Because he lived for a generation he would never see. And God said, I'm going to appropriate every victory that is in your life. I'm going to, because you lived, because you didn't live for yourself, because you didn't live for your 401k, because you didn't just live selfishly, because you looked into the future and saw your sons and daughters in the future and said, I will, line, I will be righteous for the sake of the generations to come. Because of that, Jeroboam, I would destroy you, but your father David made a covenant with me, and I will appropriate his behavior into your life. And I will bless you even though you don't deserve it. I'll tell you, Maximus was right in the movie Gladiator when he said, what we do today, what we do today echoes in eternity. And I want to challenge every father in this place. And I know that there's fathers coming from different places in life. You know, some of us, I shared, actually, most of my message was on this first service. Some of us are in a place where we live you know, we, we have sons and daughters who are wayward and we're, and we're, and we're grieved for them. And, we, and we, we wake up every day just looking out, if you will, the father's farm door, wondering if our prodigal came home. Some of us are, are living with, with great joy and we're, our sons and daughters are doing well. And, and many of us are living in, in both of those places where some of our kids, some of our sons and daughters are well and some of them are, are, are wayward, and we grieve for the ones who are, are well, we, and we, and we um, grieve for the ones who are well. That's in the Wikipedia version. We grieve for the ones who are wayward, and we rejoice for the ones who are well, and we live in this dichotomy, and, and it's really important for us to, to not live in regret. How many of you, um, how many of you are fathers? Raise your hand one more time. How many of you uh, have ever uh, done anything as a father that you regret? How many of you would like to take words back you said to sons and daughters? How many of you would like to take words back? How many of you would like to take days back? And some, how about weeks? Okay, so we get it, right? But Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, this is a guy who murdered Christians. When he says forgetting what lies behind, he's not talking about, well, yesterday, I had a bad day, I've got... I'm forgetting that day, man. I need some confidence. He's talking about, I killed thousands of Christians. Many of their wives and, and, and sons and daughters are in our churches today. I'm talking about from Paul's perspective. I have to forget what lies behind because I met Mary and I was the one who was there when, she, when her husband was stoned. I have to forget what lies behind. I can't live in regret and press forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want to this is for everybody, but fathers, you know what? We've all made mistakes, and it steals our confidence when we live in yesterday and lose sight of tomorrow. And so I want to exhort the fathers in this room, listen, let regret go. If you've, made, if you've, if you've sinned or you've made mistakes with your sons or daughters and you haven't made it right, 
You gotta go make it right. Bring closure, ask for forgiveness. But once you've got that, you've got to move on because that steals your confidence and keeps you from being what you need to be to your sons and daughters. The second thing I wanna say to the fathers is that we have to come to this place. We live in such a now world. You know, we've got the fast food mentality. It's all about today, you know, I go into you know, McDonald's or whatever your favorite place is. I won't make any comments on High Bethel TV. But whatever your favorite place is, and you know, if you don't get your food in five minutes, you're like, I thought they called this fast food. And then we live life like that. Our life is so instant, you know. If I don't get an instant cure, or instant healing, or an instant answer to my prayer, or instant whatever, I'm like, God's just not listening. And we got a fast food God. In a, in a, in that's, in, that's, not, that's not the Bible. We believe in miracles, we believe in signs and wonders, but we also believe in perseverance and pressing in. And Luke 18, and keep, we've got to keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking until we get a breakthrough. And you know, we've got to keep looking, we keep going out into the field waiting for our sons to return. And so I want to encourage you fathers, press in. Start, take, take your, lift your sights higher and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave an inheritance Proverbs says, a righteous man leaves his inheritance for his children's children. You're going to be like Abraham, who, who sows into eternity and reaps a legacy. We begin to leave an inheritance for our children's children's children. Begin to say, how can I live today in a way that will affect children that I will never know until I get to heaven? This message has become so powerful, and Kathy can tell you I'm almost obsessed with it, that I, I begin to say, how, how, see, between now and 100 years from now, I will, have, I will have children's children's children about 100 years from now. And I'm like, I won't be here, so how am I going to tell them how I feel about them? My father drowned when I was three. You know what I would give for a journal? Like an, a journal entry of what he thought of me? What was his thoughts towards me when I was born? When he held me up for the first time, what was he thinking? When I was, when I was one, when I was two years old, what was he thinking about my future? What did, he, what did he hope for me? What was his aspirations for me when he held me close to his heart? I would give, I would give $100,000 for a journal of what my father thought of me. Because he drowned before I ever got to know him. And I started thinking, I want my grand, great, great, great grand, I want them to know me. I want them to know. I want them to know that I thought of them. Every waking day, I thought, how can my behavior help my grandchildren that I won't see? And I began to write, you know, if you look at any of my books that I've written lately, they open up with, I dedicate, I dedicate this book to my great, 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 great grandchildren who I will not meet till I get to heaven. And this is what I wrote in my last book. Every word of this book was written with you in mind. As I penned the words of this book, I thought about what would you think of this book? What would you think of me? as I wrote this book. So this book is my letter to you. As you read it, don't forget, I was thinking of you as I wrote it. And I realized that, that, that those books could be one way 
that I can reach out and touch a generation that will be separated by space and time and yet who I very much want to make sure that I leave them a world in revival. Could I have just the fathers stand please? If, if your wife is pregnant for the first time, your father. We need to remember that. I actually have nine grandchildren. One went to be, one went to heaven before she came out. I want those that are standing around them, sitting around them right now, just to put your hands on their shoulders. I want you just to begin to pray. I know it's late. It's all right. This is important what we're doing here. I want you just to begin to pray for wisdom. Come on. I'm going to give you a chance. Just pray for wisdom. And pray for understanding. Pray for them to have a multi-generational vision. Holy Spirit. You can pray out loud. It's okay. It won't scare anybody. Thank you, Lord. Fill them, Lord. Follow them, Lord. God, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom, God. Give us understanding. Thank you, God. Bring our sons home. Bring our daughters home. Whew. Isaiah 60 says, Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in arms. Then your heart will thrill and rejoice. God, I pray for the sons that are wayward, the daughters that are long they're a long distance from us. They're away from us in their hearts. God, I pray that you would return, that you would cause them to return, and that we would be like the prodigal son's father who runs out in the field to meet him. Not like the elder brother who wants him to do time, to prove that he's really repentant, but that we would be like the father who runs out and is, is eager, anxious to have a party because his son is home. His daughter's return. Lord, we pray for that over each and every father right now in Jesus' name, that you would give them the prodigal son's father's heart, the heart of the heavenly father. Lord, we pray for that right now in Jesus' name. And we pray for the, we pray for the, the ageless wisdom of God to be imparted to every man, every, every father right now, that they would have ageless wisdom. Ecclesiastes says that that God has put eternity in our hearts. And without that, we couldn't know the beginning or the end of the God's works. Lord, I just pray for eternity to be pressed into our hearts, that we would be like Abraham, who sowed into Melchizedek and reaped a legacy, 
that we would be men who live for a legacy, that we would be real fathers, that we'd be people who stand with our sons and our daughters in hard times and encourage them to connect with the Heavenly Father and love them into restoration and renew them with, with, with loving words and remind them and discipline them when they've gotten off the path. God, that we'd be people who believe in them even more than they believe in themselves, that we would empower them to, to bring revival to another generation. God, may we be fathers who you're proud of. May, may, you, may you say to us what you said of your son, this is my beloved son who I'm well pleased. God, may, may we be sons to the, our heavenly fathers so we can be fathers to our earthly sons. Lord, we just pray for that right now in Jesus' name. Man, I want you to say this with me. Say, Father, I trust you completely with my children. And I give them up to you right now as Isaac offered up his son to you. I offer up my children to you that you would take care of them. And I trust you in their lives. And Father, I pray that you would give me a multi-generational vision. Show me how my actions today are affecting my children a hundred years from now. And let me leave them a blessing, a legacy, an inheritance. We hope you have enjoyed this session. For more information, please visit our website at www.moralrevolution.com.